Coming to you live. Live. And podcasting around the globe. You're listening to the Deal Farm Podcast. Guaranteed to tickle your real estate loving ear holes. And now, here's your host, world-renowned TV heartthrob and investor extraordinaire, Ken Corsini. Hey, this is Ken Corsini with the Best Deal Ever Show, and I am thrilled to have Sean Conlon on today's episode. Sean, how you doing? Great, thank you, and I'm uh, very honored to be on your show, Ken, so thank you. Well, we are thrilled to have a CNBC star with us. You know, obviously, Sean, you've accomplished a ton in real estate, you know, in the the many years that you've been in the U.S. I'm just curious, how did you even get started in real estate? Okay, well, I'll start at the beginning. It's pretty easy. Uh, I grew up in a little village in Ireland and uh, shared a house, seven of us, a two-bedroom home, your typical poor sort of story thing. Right. Um, I was obsessed with uh, the local library. <clears throat> so I spent so much time in there reading about America and fly fishing and falconry, lots of useless things that would not serve <laughs> me well in life. Right. But I learned, I read about Carnegie and Rockefeller and Getty. So I was obsessed with the American thing. When I was about 17, I uh, dropped out of college. I, I was a, a pretty smart kid. I was top of my class, but uh, we didn't have the money to continue going to college and stuff. So I briefly tried to be a uh, banker in London. I worked for Lehman Brothers. Oh, wow. Uh, God rest cool. their soul. Yeah. <laughs> right. And I can tell you right now, it was not my fault that they failed. <laughs> That's right. Somebody I mean, else's fault. Somebody else did that. Right. And I loaded mail trains at night. And I'm standing on the train platform one day and I'm thinking, I'm going to be average for the rest of my life. And that was not the plan. That was not anything I'd ever read in the books. And the funny segue back is the library eventually complained to my mother that I was reading too much, which is quite funny. What in the world? Yeah, yeah. I mean, today it'd be great because I could be president or anything because reading now, of course, is not looked on much as a good hobby. But at the time, I thought reading was a good thing. So I decided from all my reading and from my father that America was a place you could be anything. Yeah. So I truly believe that. Yeah. And I rocked off to America and I had thought the streets were paved with gold, but, <laughs> I, but actually they were covered in snow. I got a job as an assistant janitor. So the first thing I was doing was shoveling snow. And I did that for three years and I was probably the worst assistant janitor ever. I used to tell people I was a janitor and then somebody wrote in and corrected me and said, you actually were never the janitor. You were the assistant to the, the janitor. Assistant, yeah, even worse, just <laughs> insult to injury. Yeah. So I was, that's me puffing my resume, as you would say. <laughs> but in 93, which makes me sound very old these days, I decided that I really could sell real estate. I thought I could. And so I started to cold call every night. I would work my day job as a janitor, clean off all the paint and go into the office and cold call a hundred people. I got shouted at, screamed at, hung up on. I mean, I was, oh, it was unbelievable. Wow. And after six months, I nearly gave um, gave up. But if you think about that tenacity, I should have given up like a week and I was so bad. Sure, yeah. But I got a little break. Some woman who was into mysticism, don't ask. (laughs) And she let me come over and meet her and all of her cats. Oh gosh. And she had a, $23,000 $23,000 condo in Chicago that I sold and made $300. Oh my gosh. It's a start, yeah. right? Yeah. And I thought, I can do this. 
But the really interesting thing about immigrating, you know, growing up, we had a great history lesson about the Vikings. So the Vikings were this jolly group of men who used to rock around Europe and burn and pillage and steal stuff. Yep. And then yep. one day they burnt their boat. And what did that mean? I spoke many years ago at Cornell and I gave that speech. And I said, when they burnt the boat, that meant they did not intend to go back. Yeah. And so that was my philosophy when I arrived in America. I'm like, I can't go back. It would be too embarrassing. I have no option but to succeed. And that's how I approached America. Wow. And so did you land in Chicago originally then? Yeah. So we had like third or fourth or fifth or sixth cousins who came looking for the roots before you had uh, that DNA and ancestry stuff. Yeah, right. And they, and they found us. And I was, couldn't believe them. They were so big and well-fed and hungry all the time. I'm like, <laughs> wow, I got to go to that country. And their grandson now works at, did work up until very recently at my merchant bank. Wow. Yeah, which is kind of cool. Small. You know, it's funny. Half of the United States, if not more, has some amount of Irish in them, right? Absolutely. Everybody. The good half. That's right. I think it happens at the drinking half, right? Yeah, yeah no, we have, we, we're the last group you can still make fun of, which I think is wonderful. <laughs> <laughs> so knock yourself out. That's right. I know I got a little in there somewhere. It's funny. I did one of those DNA tests not that long ago. My, my last name's Corsini, so I just assume you know, I got all these Italian genes. Uh, yeah. It comes back like 90% British Isles. Wow. It just goes wow. to show you, I mean, I'm as wide as they come. It's, uh, and that's so much of the U.S. You, 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 you go back in your ancestry, it's, it's Irish, it's Scottish, it's, you know, English. It's amazing I, how much. I like, the, um, I like the, not to get off track, but I like the Irish thing in the sense that we, we were perpetual underdogs in Europe. And yeah. quite interesting, not to get way off track, but I can relate to a lot of people's struggles because we had very little rights until very recently. Hmm. So it makes us somewhat more sympathetic to people in the world a little bit. And we like to drink and fight also. <laughs> oh, yeah. And there's this other thing. Yeah. That's, that's that, right. I got that bit. You got that in you. That's an amazing story. So you, you land in real estate, you do your first deal after cold calling for so many months. Yeah. What did it look like? Is that where you started then was kind of a, just as a, as a sales agent? What did, what did that yeah. look like? So I worked in this little office that probably had in that office, six or seven people. And I was tenacious, you know, I was tenacious because I was afraid I, I, I had nothing else I was qualified for. And I was an incredible dreamer. I mean, I really thought I could make something of myself in real estate. And it was tangible. I could drive up the street and see these beautiful buildings and I loved them. The interesting thing was 93 was my first year selling real estate. Uh, arguably by 97, I was the top selling real estate broker in North America. In four years. Yeah. yeah. And were you in your 20s at the time? How old were yeah, you? I was. So I'm, I'm 50 today this year. I started at 23 selling real estate. And so at 27, you know, I was selling, you know, back when it was a lot, I was selling close to several hundred million dollars a year. Goodness yeah. gracious. Yeah, I did a very bad job of promoting that, but I crushed everybody in Chicago. I had a system. I spotted something no one else did. And, you know, I was in the right place at the right time, but I saw it. There's a great quote. Everybody's in the right place at the right time. It just somebody sticks their foot in the door and everybody else misses it. I saw it yeah. and I rode, I rode it out. I mean, I controlled all the new construction in a major part of Chicago for about four years. Oh my goodness. So that was sort of your niche. Yeah. My niche was I spotted that you could tear down these single family lot homes and put four units on it. 
Now, I wasn't reinventing the wheel, but they hadn't done it in the neighborhoods around Wrigley Field. Okay. And I transplanted that idea from somewhere else and convinced two or three guys to do that. And we did one. They built one. And I sold them the plans in a week. I drew up the little plans and everything. And they're like, these will never sell. And they sold in a week. And I'm like, wow, this is the future. So I went up and down the street, put contracts under every single door. But what I'd done in advance in the six months where I'd no future, I learned the zoning book off, right? In that neighborhood. I took a one square mile oh, wow. area. Yeah. You, you could call me and I could tell you that there were two lots that were four feet deeper than any other lot in the street. And you could get an extra unit into that property. So it was like juggling. It was a useless, wow. useless ability <laughs> till it suddenly wasn't. Yeah. So, yeah. What other, what other people weren't willing to go out there and go that extra mile to just to learn those, those specifics of that neighborhood, you became the local expert. That, there was no magic. I would walk up and down every street. I would talk to everybody. I would engage everybody. It's amazing. And the CIA still do to this day. You pick up your intelligence on the street. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, that is so, that is so true. And especially if you're focusing on an area, any, any real estate investor, any house flipper should absolutely be talking to every neighbor on their street to understand the lay of the land first. It's amazing what you can pick up out there when you ask the right question. Yeah. So you connected with a handful of, uh, of builders and developers and you just started sourcing property for them. That was, it was that simple. I, I went in, I saw a guy building a building somewhere and I said, hey, would you be interested in this stuff? And I drove by every building site and I, I cold called all of them also, but I dropped into them. And it got to a point where in Chicago, I was the one-stop shopping. So say you rocked into Chicago and you're an accountant. You're like, I want to be a developer. They would say, go see Sean Condon. So I would have a set of plans. I would have a piece of land that I tied up. I would have the you know, attorney, closing company in the bank to finance it. And you would leave my office. You would come in as an accountant and you would leave as a developer. And so one stop shop. One stop, yeah. I probably created a thousand multimillionaires in that time frame in Chicago developing. Wow. And then I started to finance their acquisitions and stuff like that with the money I was making as a broker. Sure. Well, once you start to see the big picture, you see the other guys and how they're plugging in and making money. You're like, I could do that. Yeah. Well, I, I should be getting a yeah. piece of that, yeah. right? Yeah. Till, till, the, till the music stops, then it's not as pretty. So, well, that's true. Sides of that. Yeah. Well, so fast forward uh, for our listeners that, you know, maybe haven't seen the show, The Deed on CNBC or haven't followed you. Give us an idea. What does your business look like today? Okay. So my business or the show, which. Are Let's talk business. What does your business okay. look like? So my business today is it's, it's evolved massively. So while I own a lot of real estate, I own stuff in Florida and Carolinas and Chicago and California until recently. My business day is I've taken the network that I've built across the globe. And it's global. I throw a party next week in London and there'll be 200 people in the room and the network in the room is over $500 billion. These are people I've collected across my life that I know. So I basically introduce super high network families and institutions to real estate operating companies across the globe that need capital. And the ticket range is generally that stuff from anywhere from 10 million up to 500 million. And I introduce them. So basically, I've evolved what I did in the 90s, but I still connect the dots for people. So I represent a group right now that's looking to build in Italy, Spain, the UK, India, and I drop on the ground with them and introduce them to everybody. And I connect all the dots for them, local financing, 
I find them the land, I put all the pieces together. And that's what I do. Same thing as I did in the 90s, just bigger figures and across the globe. Wow. So you're just literally leveraging your network at this point yeah, in time. That's it. It's the most valuable asset I have is my network. And part of my merchant bank, I, I, I teamed up with, there's a family here called the Dailies, Mayor Daly. They've run Chicago for 54 years, the family. Wow. And they've the greatest Rolodex probably in North America. And they're part of Condon & Co. So we're working our... A Rolodex, by the way, makes me sound like a dinosaur. To all you young kids watching <laughs> right. this, that's yeah. your contacts. That's right, exactly. <laughs> Open your phone and your contact yeah. list. That's yeah. what he's talking about. That's what I'm talking about. Sorry about that. That's right. Wow. <laughs> I know what you're talking about. But okay. Well, uh, maybe those millennials don't. Yeah. That's interesting. So, so but you, you do have a, you have a bank, correct? I mean, in terms of yeah. your businesses, yeah. you've got the, and do you still have any of the brokerages? Any uh, of the, I have, so I have a commercial brokerage. That's okay. Quite, I, I like to, to make it you know, clear that we're more special ops than a huge brokerage. We have very special situations. We, we sold a veterans hospital down in Atlanta, Georgia a couple of years ago, and it was oh, like wow. a 60, 70 million dollar ticket. But we went specifically to find that for a client. Okay, gotcha. High ticket, very specific, very, yeah, yeah very, custom very almost. Yeah, interesting. Okay, so now over the last, you know, however many years, since 93, you've been in real estate, you've obviously thrived in this space. Is there one deal in particular that stands out as your best deal ever? Yeah, so I, I'm going to give you two. Okay. Just, just, I, I'll give you one real estate one and one sort of starting a company one. So 99, my last year selling real estate. So I only did 93 to 99. But I like to think I was like Michael Jordan. I was going to get out and top. Obviously not comparing myself to Michael right. Jordan because not, not only can I not dunk, I can't catch a basketball. <laughs> so I'm to go there. But I decided that I could start something and take advantage of technology that was out there. Now I'm going to sound really old school now, but at the time it was pretty cutting edge. I started a real estate brokerage in 2000 and I was the second largest user of Blackberries in North America. And now some of your viewers won't remember what a Blackberry is or listeners, but it was a very cool item. Oh, and yeah. I gave out 300 to my agents. So we became the most efficient brokerage in Chicago, bar none, because huh. we had a centralized scheduling system. You'd call, you'd call, and I had a rating system. If you were the best, you were diamond. If you responded to my lead within five minutes, you're diamond. 25 minutes, you were gold. Anything outside 30 minutes an hour, you fell off my, li my list. So it was very aggressive. Yeah. But we sold a ton of real estate. When I sold that company two years in, I grew it from zero to a billion dollars in sales in about 14 months. Holy moly. How many, yeah. and how many, from zero agents to how, how many agents Probably were you? About, three, about 300 agents. 300 agents. We, we were very cool at the time and we were very progressive. We were way ahead of the, the curve. But the smart bit about it was I bought it back three years later really, and sold it a year later for the same price again. So that was my trick. Oh my goodness. Had the, had the, did the people that buy it run it into the ground and that's why you were able to buy yeah. it back on discount, yeah. I'm assuming. Yeah. Let's just say they'd run it into the ground. It was poorly driven. Uh, how so often does that happen? I mean, when, you know, a business owner sells their business and the new people just don't know how to run it the same way. A lot more than you would think. I mean, it was quite, I mean, I was watching the car crash in slow motion. Yeah. It was, it was honest to God. It was, it was unbelievable to watch. And it seemed so very obvious to me from the outside. Right. 
but they were in the weeds to be fair to them and the cultures didn't mesh. So I took an, you know, took the opportunity to buy it back and sell it again. And and I sold it to basically the same management group again with new financing. <laughs> Did you really? I love America. Uh, that's right. Yeah, exactly. The, that's the American dream right there. Sell that something, buy it back, yeah. sell it again. So the real estate deal I did that I would think is most relatable and possibly the best deal I had done was I used to get into the office. And so before the internet, there was a book that would be delivered to the office at midnight. And there was no one in the office, so you would go to all the properties and underline them. And so I was going to look at one of those properties one night, and I noticed a beautiful big building with retail. And I used to sit on the doorstep watching it every night then. I just, just watched the building like I was stalking it. And I was like, God, what a location, but why is there a cowboy boot store in the first floor? And nobody's doing anything with it. So I watched it for about six months, and I thought, I should see if they would sell it. And I walked in off the street and the cowboy shouted at me and screamed at me because he turns out he didn't know it and he didn't want to get his story located. And then I started to walk up and down the street and I'm like, I know what can go here. So I decided that I could put Ralph Lauren in that store for some crazy reason because it'd been all around the world and I'd realized that the building had all the feelings of a Ralph Lauren store. And so, I finally bought the building and everybody said, what a moron, he totally overpaid for it. It was retail on a beautiful corner in Lincoln Park with 16 apartments above it. Oh, cool. And so I bought it, I think for 2.9 and I put 300,000 into cleaning it up. And four months later, I put Ralph Lauren into it. Did you, had you talked to him before this or you just said, I'm gonna buy it and, and he's gonna go in here? I, I hadn't talked to him. I, I, I knew there was someone in the mix and the neighbor looking in the neighborhoods, but I hadn't talked to them and I would never have gotten to talk to Ralph Lauren, no matter how confident I was. <laughs> right, right, right. And, but I felt that it had all the right bones. I mean, it was intuitive. I, I could have been totally wrong, which could have made this my worst deal ever also. Right. But I did that. They went in and we sold a year later for 10.4 million. Come on. Yeah. And so that was like, that, the reason that was so my best deal, I'd gone from deals where I was making $200,000 a deal to that. And I was like, and what did I do differently? I didn't. I just watched. I paid attention. Yeah. No magic, no education, nothing that made me better than anybody else. But the sheer fact that I was on the street and sitting on that step every morning having my coffee and I counted the foot traffic. I was like, it's really affluent. It's foot traffic. It's going to the station. And it's a perfect location. And it was. Golly, what a gamble. But at the yeah. same time, yeah. what a home run at the same yeah, time. It was a good one. So let me just make sure I get these, this right. So you bought the building, 2.9. That included the retail in the bottom. You had some uh, 16 units up top. Yeah. And then put $300,000 worth of renovation yeah. into it. Just yeah. spruced it up. Spruced it up. Called up Ralph Lauren's office, his assistant yeah. janitor, and said, yeah, exactly. <laughs> right. I got a deal. Exactly. I got a deal. If you can talk to And so they, they checked it out. They liked it. They said, we're going to move our, our space in here. We're going to put a, at the time, we're going to put a rugby store in there, which of course no longer assists in the portfolio, but I'd sold the thing. And the going rate at the time on the street was, I think, 28 bucks to 32 bucks a square foot. Right. I got $82 a square foot. 
from that. How? What, so what did you do differently? That You just told them this is the price, this is where you need to be. You sold them the dream, I guess, of being there. Look, look at this face. <laughs> exactly right. <laughs> Have some Irish whiskey. <laughs> yeah. I got them drunk. Myself and Ralph Lauren went for driving his Bugatti out in Long Island and I sold him a store. No, Good. no. I, it had all the criteria that they were looking for. And the interesting thing about companies like that, despite having local knowledge, they often go on these streets for branding purposes. The sales yeah. don't always support. Oh, yeah. yeah, yeah. The rent they pay, they need to be there. So it's yeah. a big marketing position. Right. Not necessarily the sales in the store supporting it. I got, it's like a big billboard in Times yeah. Square or something, like right? Like a crazy billboard. That's yeah. kind of what it seemed like, yeah. I gotcha. So you got this insane lease from them, and then you immediately, a year later, you turned yeah, around and marketed yeah. it. Yeah, yeah. Sold it quickly. Well, I don't blame you. I would have too, man. If you can cash out that quick, why not, man? It seemed, look, there, there's two philosophies in that. I mean, if I was to tell you I owned hundreds of apartments in the early 2000s, I should have kept them. They were hundreds of millions of dollars, and I sold them for two or three times what I paid for. Yeah. You know, when you're a real estate operator, you have to make sell yes. things to have Yes, capital. you do. You, you have to turn your money. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I 100% understand that. And crap, if you can make uh, seven million in a year, you just you'd make the seven million and you move yeah, on, yeah. right? So it was outside the year, so I was capital gains tax. So I was a little smart about it. There, there you go. There you go. Yeah. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. Unbelievable. So, so, so somebody's listening to this, like, okay, how in the world do you pull off a building like that? Did you? How did? You, I'm just curious how you funded it. Is that where you bring some partners in with some equity and you and you have so, a? Yeah. So listen, I two things at that time I had obviously a decent amount of money because I've been making a lot of money as a broker. But a deal like that, as I've gotten smart, I realized that better to own 20% of a deal like that and have the capital come from somewhere else than go all in on it. Correct. Now that one, I went all in on it with one partner. So wow. it was extra aggressive. But a smarter person would do five or six deals and own 20%. Correct. And have the capital from somewhere else. That's so right. In that sort of situation, look, if you have the ability to tie that deal up and sell that vision to investors, you'll get the money for a deal like that. That's right. Yeah. No question. That's right. And, and right now there's so much demand, by the way, for real estate because there's no yield anywhere else. People love real estate. That's they right. always do. Yep. But right now, particularly, it's incredibly hard. Yep. Well, it's tangible. It's not going to be worth nothing tomorrow. People always need somewhere to live, right? No, absolutely. And you know, that property bounced down in value when Ralph Lauren left. I'm sure. But then they retenanted it and it's probably back up to where they bought it, albeit I got a great price of that. But it's still there. They'll yeah. be fine. They'll That's always right. be fine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, and that area, you said right around the corner from Lincoln Park, it's always going to be a good area in Chicago, yeah. right? It's the, it's the heart of Lincoln Park. It was an Armitage Avenue. It's fantastic. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Beautiful. I think that's a really interesting and good point that you make too, that, you know, a lot of times you think, you know, these operators are out there and they're owning all these, these large properties, but so much of the time they own a percentage of that property because they've brought in partners and they're, they're actually safer because they've sort of spread their risk across multiple properties. Absolutely. All their capital is not tied into one property. And it took me a long time to do that. I really operated in a zero sum game. I went all in on my deals myself and I was massively prone to risk. Till I learned my lesson the hard way. Sure. Now, now I do, you know, 
while my main business is my network, when I do real estate deals, I don't need to own all of them. I'll own my piece and bring in investors. Yep. Yep. Because you can still arrive at the same place, but you can scale it across the country. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And if one, if one property goes south, it doesn't sink the ship. You've got all these other ones that, you know, sort of keep Absolutely. Spreading it out. So, okay. So this, this is a crazy deal. This is obviously the biggest deal that I've, I've, I've talked to anybody about on the show. And the way you went about it, so interesting because it was such a gamble of like, I know this is the tenant that needs to be here and it actually worked out that way. But I'm curious, how did that, did that change your mentality? Did that change your, the way you do business after you did this deal? Yeah, it, it sowed the seeds for my potential near death experience in 2008. Because oh, wow. I got overly, well, I got overly confident. Yeah, wow. I'd, I'd taken a huge gamble and I thought I was smarter than a lot of people. Wow. And, and when I look back at it, what I'd done that made me better than anybody else was I'd worked hard, I'd walked the streets, I'd sat down and I'd studied. Like common sense is not that common. You know, people wouldn't think that the key to my success in that deal was I sat on the doorstep every morning and drank a coffee and watched all the traffic go by and watched the people coming and going to the building and asked them all questions. But the, 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 the downside to that was, you know, it poisoned my thinking a little. I thought, oh my God, I can do anything. <laughs> yeah, I, that's interesting. And I did for a while and I did for a while till then I didn't. Yeah, yeah 2008, I'm sure changed your mind yeah, real quick. Yeah, changed a lot I, of people's mind. I got my ass kicked in 2008. <laughs> wow, yeah. yeah, it is, it, it is interesting. I mean, I, it's funny because I, I've, I've taken some lumps on a couple of houses here lately and it's same thing. You get overconfident. You think that you got the Midas touch. Everything you, you touch is going to turn to gold and it's not always the case. And remember, so many things are outside your control. The market can stop on a penny. That's right. So like in 2008, I'd done some pretty smart things and stupid things. I'd sold a lot of my real estate, so I should have been looking really smart. But I decided to lend the money out to guys who were less oh. competent than me. Yeah. And I lent it out in markets that I wasn't familiar with. I was yeah. in Minneapolis, Austin, Texas, Beverly Hills, wow. Austin. I was across the country. Yeah, yeah. No control. I was totally out of control. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, lender, lenders definitely got the, the brunt of it when it was all yeah. said and done. Yeah. But I took Amazing. back a lot of real estate. So I doubled down into it. So I, I, was, I, was, I was screwed. I was really going to go down. And I figured, well, if I'm going to go down, I might as well double down. So I was willing to do something other people weren't. And that was the last of my money I bought out senior positions with my partners. Right. I convinced my partners to believe in me and they did. And I doubled down and I bought out like we bought a thousand units in Austin, Texas. We bought back the senior positions. And I went down there, flew down, you know, got people out front with billboards to get them rented off. I mean, it was roll your sleeves up. And wow. that's when I realized that for a while there I was really insecure about it because I thought, you know, I got lucky the first time I met it. Yeah. When I really got into the cycle, there's a great, you know, there's a great expression. You can't tell a champion by how he behaves when he's winning. You can tell a champion by how he behaves when he gets knocked down. Wow. And lots of my contemporaries went down. I was willing to go back, sit in the back of the plane, get up at 4 a.m., fly around to all these cities, roll my sleeves up and try and save my assets. And I did. I saved most of them. Wow. Really? So, so we had $100 million Mez money on the street. And oh my took, gosh. Yeah. Mez money. Right. That's some risky money, man. I mean, it's unbelievable. It's like setting yourself on fire in like a, <laughs> you know, explosive factory. Oh it's probably gosh. not going to end well. 
Yeah. I mean, the returns were great when it was winning, I'm sure. You're lending at what, 18, 20% probably? 27%. And you were also paying taxes on that return, but you were not getting the money. So it was a double whammy. I got a huge tax bill. Oh, my gosh. The money I didn't make. Oh, my gosh. Holy cow. Yeah. Super lesson. So, but like you said, so you went and you bought out the first lien positions, yeah. put yourself in a much more secure position. And then, and then, I mean, in places like Austin, those, those, that market came back. It's stronger than ever right now. So it took us four years, but we got our hundred million back. You did. You recovered it. Unbelievable. Yeah. Wow. The, I mean, I know Blackstone, Goldman Sachs, JP Morgan, they all went to zero on their MES. Yeah. We were one of the few MES, MES companies in the country that got their money back. Now, it meant I missed out, generally speaking, on the incredible opportunities. Sure. That's right. Yep. Yep. You were uh, focusing on recovering your assets yeah. rather than going out there and acquiring yeah. new ones. Right. Yeah. I acquired a few, though. I mean, I met, I met a lot of clients, a lot of money. I mean, I did buy two towers in Chicago with a hedge fund. And oh, wow. I bought apartment buildings in Palm Beach and shopping centers in North Carolina. So I did do a little bit. <laughs> yeah. Wasn't all bad. No, it wasn't all bad. But that scary. was... That was such a good quote. I almost want you to say it again. You know, you, you judge a champion not by how he's winning, but what he does when he's... I'm happy to say it again then. Um, yeah, let's hear it because it's phenomenal. Well, 2000, 2009 told you a lot about people, right? People behave in lots of different ways, right? And there is a great expression. You can't tell a champion by how he behaves when he's winning. You can tell a champion by how he behaves when he gets knocked down. And a lot of people got knocked down and behaved badly. I got knocked down and I got up again and I got knocked down and I got up again. They just finally gave up knocking me down because I was not, I was not going out in that fight. Unbelievable. It was was very scary. Sure. Sure. Yeah. But the fact that you rolled up your sleeves and you, you flew to Austin and you just house by house, you recovered your assets. That's phenomenal. What a story. Yeah. I mean, there's, there's so many quotes for that time. There's another wonderful quote. It says, Meet success like a gentleman and failure like a man. Wow. And lots of people behave really badly, you know, yeah. they owed me money. They just did. And, you know, I understand it in hindsight. Some of them were scared to death. I did the right thing. It caused me a lot more pain, but I got through it and I came out of it with an incredible reputation. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, that's true too. Think of all the other guys in, in that situation that just sort of threw their hands in the air. Everybody else is getting their ass kicked. I guess I'll just be one of them. And yeah. sorry, everybody, if you, if you lost money with me. My partner walked away from $750 million of debt, but kept his G5 and his $27 million house in California. Yeah, yeah. And I, I sold, I, sold I, I was owed $100 million, and I don't mind saying I was owed $100 million, and I sold my car in 2010 to meet payroll. Wow. Yeah. Holy cow. And I'm proud of that. Yeah, sure. Man, what a story. Unbelievable. <laughs> yeah, I don't want to do it again. No, I don't blame you, but you <laughs> learn. And, that's, and so again, that was, that was the big, I didn't realize what a great answer I was going to get to that question in terms of what you, what you learned coming out of that best deal ever. Yeah. Don't get, uh, don't get too confident in your own no. abilities, right? No, no. And because the world can deliver you, you know, when we touch on it in the worst deal ever, the world can deliver you curveballs out of nowhere. I sure. Mean, so I do approach life now with a lot of trepidation. I'm an incredible optimist. I'm mm-hmm. the guy you want on a desert island because I'm like, I always believe the sun will come up tomorrow and we'll figure it out. Mm-hmm. But I have a healthy dose of skepticism hidden inside me now on, on lots of things. And sometimes it's a bit too cynical because people will come into me with great dreams. and like, 
oh, wait till the sledgehammer hits you in the head when the market turns. <laughs> That's right, yeah. Which it's is coming. not inspiring to the kids, but <laughs> it happens. Yeah, life lesson. Be ready. Yeah. yeah. Unbelievable. Sean, man, this was such a good interview, man. I really, really appreciate you coming on the show today. Thank you. Thank you. I really right. appreciate it. I'm very flattered to be interviewed by you. Absolutely. Well, I can't wait to talk to you again. Take care. All right. Thank you very much. Uh, hey, friends, let's talk for just a minute about the market we're in right now. It's tough, right? Deals are hard to come by. The last thing you need is trouble funding a deal once you've done the hard work to source it. Trust me, I get it. I've been at this for 16 years and financing deals is often a huge pain in the rear. So I decided to solve the problem. I launched Red Capital Lending for real estate investors like me and probably like you. The days of paying 12% interest are over. And if it's taking more than a week for your lender to close, you're using the wrong lender. We've built Red Capital Lending for the sole purpose of providing the lowest cost of investment capital possible. I'm talking about interest rates in the sevens. With the highest level of customer service and with the fastest turnarounds, our goal is to provide funding within five days. If you've got a deal coming up and you're ready to save money and avoid the typical hassles associated with most lenders, take a minute and just submit your deal at redcapitallending.com. We'd love to work with you and show you just how easy it can be to fund your next project. Again, redcapitallending.com. Okay, so let's get back to the show, except in this segment, we're going to talk about the deals that didn't go so well. Hope you enjoy. Okay, so I'm here with my friend Sean Conlin of The Deed on CNBC, and uh, him and I have been chatting about his best deal ever, but I want to know now, Sean, about your worst deal ever. Okay. So my worst deal ever, you know, I don't do anything in half measures. So I was a real estate broker till 99, 2000. And we were, my friend and I were walking on the street doing our usual nosing around to see what's going on. And the doorman at a hotel at the time that was 280 rooms or something crazy like that in downtown Chicago. It was a very famous hotel. It was huge. It was, I mean, I knew nothing about hotels. I knew right. nothing about bed and breakfast, but I'm like, you know what? I'm a genius. I can do this. And of course, my partner, the only person who was taught them were smarter than everybody else even more was my partner. So the two of us were complete <laughs> morons. <laughs> I mean, all we were missing in hindsight on our due diligence group was like a fire eater and a juggler. I mean, oh, we, were, no. we were clowns. Oh, so we man. walked through, we do really no due diligence on them. Oh, no. So we bought the thing at the time for, I'm going to say, close to 20 million, right? Oh my gosh. And it needed $59 million of work to bring it up to speed. Oh my gosh. Now, but we did no research and I wrote the down payment check. So that's the old more money than sense. Yeah. Oh man. I wrote the down payment check and we, we would sit outside the hotel and look at each other and admire how smart we were. I mean, I don't mind a minute. <laughs> Patting each other on the back. Yeah, what a great yeah, thing yeah, we just yeah. did. Right. People would drive by and say, look at those two smug bastards. And I should have sworn, sorry about that. But I was being, we were being, we were just immature. You know? Yeah, sure. Hindsight. So September 11th happened. Oh, crap. Wow. We needed a 283-room hotel. That, oh was my running, that was running out, if I remember correctly, something like an $800,000 loss a month. Oh, gosh. Oh, and my gosh. And I had the money initially, and it was going very quickly. It was going very quickly. Now, that, 
that incident I describe as a perfect black swan situation. Yeah. Even if we had been smart, we would never have written, you know, on the road that sure. that would happen. So right. the hotel was practically empty for a couple of months because it was a very business oriented hotel. Yeah. So people were not traveling. So my partner went out quite interestingly and sold half of his interest to some people who I didn't know. Oh, jeez. So they decided to make a move on me to squeeze me out and take all my equity. So now the analogy I give is partners should never fight because you're in a lifeboat together, right? Sure. And if you stab my side of the inflatable raft, we sink. If yeah. I stab your side, we sink. Yeah. So now I'm in a situation where there's something going on. I don't know what it is. And I didn't know he knew partners. And I didn't know that they were trying to muscle me out. But lots of weird things were happening. So now I'm on the hook for $70 million. Oh and gosh. people are doing all sorts of wild things. So I, I finally dawned on me what was going on. And so I got into a pitched battle. And for re research purposes at the time, people were collecting other people's garbage or garbage trucks to try and find a smoking gun. Oh, geez. It was wild. That's crazy. So for two years of my life, I was in pitch litigation. Nothing about the hotels. I was, I was so scared to death. And, you know, again, though, I had that same tenacious ability. I was scared to death. But I got up every day and went to battle. I mean, it was two years of my life that were so distracting. But wow. they, the people on the other side were super wealthy. They were billionaires. And they figured that they would bleed me out. But right. they, under, they underestimated where I'd come from. <laughs> That's right. And I'd come from nothing. And I was not going back. And the money they were trying to take from me, for them, it was a figure. They didn't get emotionally involved. They didn't know or care who I was per se. They were just trying to wipe me out and take my equity. So I fought them the whole way to the end and got my equity. Oh, my goodness. And it was a poison chalice because they got the hotel. And they were very proud. They were bragging about muscling me out. And they lost $25 million of the deal. So really, so yeah. you, you, yeah, at some point you're probably like, you know what, you can have the dang hotel. I know I didn't buy right. Yeah. Well, here's the thing I knew at that point, but I, then I had to keep fighting to appear like I wanted it still. Right. Right. But I was like, oh, please. I mean, listen, I lost tons of money on it. So that's sure. the point of the story. But sure. more importantly, the psychological loss, it scared me to death. And during this whole process, uh, my father died very young. He died at 56. Wow. You know, so all, all this was in the same sort of time frame. This wow. was going on. Yeah. And it was unbelievable. I mean, the lessons were, you know, obviously I didn't know what I was doing. I was, again, overly confident. Yeah. And I got into an area I knew nothing about. Yeah. Right. That's so simple. had never done the hotel business before. Didn't really know how to underwrite it. No. no. Wanted the trophy. No. no I, I mean, I would drive out on my way to do open houses. <laughs> it's that simple unbelievable yeah. and your partner sold out his share without you knowing it yeah so how did Na that naughty naughty is right <laughs> how did that how does that play out between you and your friend i'm, I'm assuming that drove a wedge there in the old friendship it, it did and you know what we had a scorched earth battle and he got crucified in the middle i mean he really got hurt because oh, okay he was between me and the 800 pound gorilla but interesting 
I was a street fighter and they were an 800 pound gorilla and he was in the middle. So he, he got hurt. Wow. Wow. And years later, I reconnected with him and I kind of understood he did it out of being scared and he did it out of pride. Yeah. But had he come to me and said, Sean, I can't match your capital calls. Yeah. I would have worked with him. So that's yeah. something I've learned. Communicate, communicate, communicate. Totally. No matter how bad the news is, yeah. I, I'm always good at delivering bad news. I'm not afraid to do it. Yep. Yep. And he didn't want to deliver bad news to me. Yep. Bad news does not get better with age, as they, as no, they say, no. right? It, it compounds and it grows and it takes on a life of its own. Right, right. So. Amazing. So at the end of the day, though, you stuck this 800-pound gorilla with the hotel. And for yeah. the most part, you got your original equity investment yeah. back. Yeah, I did. I mean, I spent a million dollars or more in legal fees. And I did something else at the time that has stood to me. There's a very large bank that lets the money. And so my partner disappeared. The 800-pound gorilla was busy trying to, you know, psyops me and psychologically terrorize me. I got in the car every two weeks and drove an hour and a half up to the bank to sit with the workout department so they could lecture me and tell me how stupid I was. But they were looking out for their interest. But I showed up every Thursday, as I promised I would, for like 14 months. So they never foreclosed on me. Wow. And that's, you know, that's another thing. Think how many people get behind on, on a, a rent payment or behind on a mortgage payment and they disappear. And they yeah, they joke it. And I learned that as a Meslin. I'll tell you just a couple of things. There yeah. are three ways people react to a crisis, right? Right. So there's the first person who freaks out, goes into a fetal position under the table. You can never save them, right? There's the second person who calls you up and said, look, guys, I can't, I, I can't do it. I, I, need, you know, I need help. Every one of those, when I was lending money out, I was able to save them. Because they came to me, they said, we want to pay you back, but we're in trouble. What do we do? We worked out of that together. I discounted it. It didn't matter because that showed integrity. Sure. There's a third guy who's my favorite who blames everybody else. Wow. I, I had a guy who owed me $20 million and my partners, and he showed up an hour and a half late for my meeting on his private jet after I'd flown Southwest to meet him. Oh, jeez. And I'm like, what the hell? What, what, what? And he's like, oh yeah, man, there's a real delay at the FBO. And I'm like, FBO, that sounds like something I heard many years ago. I said, is that where private planes come from? And he's like, oh yeah, I got a private jet. I'm like, man, you're in trouble with me. You're like, that's mine now. I'll have that. So I foreclosed on him. And then he sued us because, and he was in his seventies. And I was like, at that time, still like in my thirties, late thirties. He said, I induced him into borrowing the $20 million. Come on. Yeah. I knocked the, he- I knocked the shit out of him. We got all of our money back. Did you really? Yeah, yeah. Wow. I could have worked with him. He had a great asset. So, but there are the three reactions I've always seen. Human nature, you know, is not that surprising. I mean, yeah. don't get me wrong. People can surprise you, but they have, they have tells. There are ways people behave across the board and you'll have seen it in your business. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. 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 A lot of times you see what you see so much of is to just bury your head in the sand. I don't want to deal with it. It hurts too much. Yeah. I'm going to stay away yeah. from it. Yeah. But it always, common. it always hurts you in the end. That's the one that kills you. Yeah. If you, if you face up and say, Hey, look, I've got a problem. You can often work out of it, but if you bury it, it'll blow up later. Yeah. Yeah. 
That's so good, man. Well, it, it, for being a worst deal ever, I mean, again, on a scale that we have not chatted about on the show before, I mean, the $59 million renovation on a hotel, yeah. but to, yeah. to go through the fight and the struggle for two years, I know that waking up every morning was a struggle, but to come out and yeah. still have at least recovered some equity and not yeah. taken a total yeah. bath on it, that's phenomenal. Yeah, no, I mean, listen, I guess I would say that the worst deal was the psychological impact. Sure. Horrifying. I totally. did no business for two years. Yeah. You know, I couldn't sleep and <sighs> hard to get out of bed in the morning. So yeah. that was the yeah. price. Yeah. And it still cost me millions of dollars of my hard earned money. Yeah. 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 And, and litigation is a pirate victory. I mean, listen, every once in yeah. a while you have to shoot a hostage so people know you will. Yeah. Right. But generally speaking, you avoid litigation at all costs. Yeah. Right. The only, only people that win in litigation are the attorneys, right? Of course. <laughs> They're the only ones that win. There's that great, I've seen this great print on an attorney's office, right? It's called a divorce attorney, right? So the wife is pulling the cow by the horns and the husband's pulling the cow by the tail and the divorce attorney's underneath milking the cow. <laughs> <laughs> That's so true. So true. That's, That's such a good word off. picture. Thanks That's exactly off. what it is. Sean, man, thanks again for coming on and being so transparent about your worst deal, man. This was another phenomenal lesson from you, man. Well, thank you. And I'm very excited about your book and I'm really excited to be interviewed by you. So uh, we'll catch up soon, okay? Fantastic. Thanks again, thank Sean. You, Take buddy. care. Appreciate it. Hey, Deal Farm listeners. If you haven't heard, I just recently released a book through Bigger Pockets Publishing called Profit Like the Pros. If you dig the Best Deal Ever podcasts, you will definitely want to get your hands on this book. I take 25 stories from some of the top investors in the country and distill them down into 25 separate chapters that will not only entertain you, but educate and inspire you in all different facets of real estate investing. From wholesaling and flipping to self-storage, multifamily and commercial, we get into the details of short sales, subject twos, and even land flipping. And whether you're a brand new investor or you have years of experience under your belt, I promise you this book will engage you. If you would, take a minute, go to Amazon and order this book, Profit Like the Pros. And if you like it, please leave us a review. Thanks so much, folks, and I will see you on the next episode of The Deal Farm.